Hi folks, welcome to the Queers Hug Trees podcast. This is Allegra. And this is Emily. Um, we're here to host a collaborative exploration of the links between queerness and environmental justice. We're asking what it means to be queer in the environmental justice movement, how we can address barriers to queer environmentalism, and what the environmental movement can learn from queer justice struggles. Our title puts together two previously derogatory terms for gender and sexually diverse people and for environmental activists. We're really here to reclaim those narratives, reclaim those terms, and go on a disruptive knowledge journey to queer climate, biodiversity, and other environmental conversations. Hey guys, so today our theme for the podcast is, is nature queer? An intro to queer ecology. So I guess one thing that I wanted to start with is I recently read a kind of seminal book in queer history and literature of the 20th century, um, and that's Stone Butch Blues by Leslie Feinberg. Um, and there's a line in it that really resonated with me. Um, so the main character, Jess, is gender nonconforming. And so Jess says in the book, nature held me close and seemed to find no fault with me. Jess is thinking that whatever classmates, family members, or strangers may say, whatever social norms may dictate, nature does not give a fuck about gender binaries. And I kind of think that's part of what queer ecology is all about. It's about disrupting things that our society says are not right or are supposed to be binarized. Um, anyways, that was a tangent. Hi, Allegra. <laughs> Hello, Emily. Awesome. Yeah, I'm really excited for this episode as well. My name's Allegra. I go by she, her pronouns. Um, I'm bisexual, I'm white, and I'm currently residing in Toronto as a student. Yeah. Tell me about yourself, Emily. Yeah, I'm Emily. I um, use they, ze, she, he pronouns, so all of them. Um, I am pansexual, and I am kind of just not going with a certain gender right now. Um, yeah, that's me. I live on land known as Toronto in so-called Canada, um, originally from Vancouver, though. Sweet. So, yeah, do you want to start us off with some of the research that you've been doing into queer ecology? Yeah. Um, so yeah, queer ecology. <laughs> um, I mean, we both did a little bit of research, um, but I guess the first thing we should probably talk about is what is queer ecology? It kind of seems like a big word. Um, so what does this term bring to mind when you hear it? Yeah, maybe I can talk to just what makes me think of it and you can give us the actual <laughs> definition. Um, but what I'm thinking about queer ecology, yeah, I'm thinking about all the ways the natural world around us and inside of us is queer and weird and doesn't conform to anything that society has laid out as like the rules basically yeah queer ecology is like hard to define because it comes from so many disciplines and it's so wide-ranging um but essentially in in a book called keywords for environmental studies um a professor who looks at queer ecology, uh, Katarina Sandilands, provides a general definition that I've kind of been using in my head. So it's queer ecology refers to a loose interdisciplinary constellation of practices that aim in different ways to disrupt prevailing heterosexist, discursive and institutional articulations of sexuality and nature, and also to reimagine evolutionary processes, ecological interactions and environmental politics in light of queer theory. Now that's a bit of a mouthful in general. Um, Basically, I understand queer ecology as this kind of loose collection of theories and practices that bring together the disciplines of queer theory and ecology. Um, 
And it's not all academic. So queer theory is important because it's a way of looking at and relating to nature that moves beyond and, and disrupts our mainstream colonial binarized understandings. So like when I say binarizing, I mean when people talk about nature, we often see it as there are females and there are males in a species. We often see it as the males and the females mate. Um, and we often use these kind of heterosexist, cisnormative ways of looking at nature that translate into the ways that we look internally at human society and, and kind of help to define what we see as normal in terms of sexual interactions, mating rituals, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's, it's about breaking down that binary. I guess one other thing that I wanted to talk about would be one of the binaries that queer theory can help to break down is this idea that humans are separate from nature. So like queerness is all about reimagining and disrupting existing ways of seeing the world. And one of those existing ways of seeing the world that we've completely created in our minds is that humans are somehow exempt from nature, that we're not a part of nature. Um, we are animals, we are living beings, and we are just as much a part of nature as any other species. Yes, we build our own homes and cities that are separate from a lot of other living organisms, but we depend on nature and we are a part of it. And I think that binary creates distance that is harmful in terms of a lot of environmental issues, um, especially like the way we treat the earth with a lack of respect, like we see ourselves as a buzz of it. So in that way, I think queer ecology is really beautiful and kind of relating to other environmental issues because it, it tells us like, you are not just destroying some separate entity, you're destroying your home. Yeah, absolutely. That was actually one of the topics that I find most interesting about, um, yeah, finding queerness in nature is that, um, well, basically I took a course, yeah, uh, last year that was really good and talked about how, yeah, we have separated humans from nature and created that binary. And a lot of it actually does have colonial roots, which is really interesting to look at. Um, this guy that we read from, William Cronin, not necessarily like a queer scholar, but he was talking about like the trouble with wilderness is what his article was called. And basically that um, we've created this idea of the wilderness as a way, kind of like as a foil to civilization so that you can have civilization separated from the wilderness and then you create this hierarchy that's based on that separation, which is basically what you've been saying. Basically understanding that this is a way to like in the creation of civilization, we also have to have the creation of wilderness that is separate from civilization somehow. And of course, that totally gets into like, who is considered human and all that. And so, yeah, it's not only an environmental issue, but also a very big social issue to start to understand that all humans are equal. We need to also understand that all living beings, all non-living beings, including us as living beings, <laughs> everyone is equal. That's, yeah, I mean, that's really beautiful. Um, I'm in my fourth year of university um, and I'm taking a course about queer indigenous politics and cultures. And the other day our professor um, was talking about the term respect and how in westernized understandings it's meant to um, connote like authority a lot of the time and like respecting people above you and respecting structures, um, but how in indigenous understandings in some ways the term can also mean um treating others like lightly and going easy on others and so imagine if like we treated the world with like respect based on that understanding like 
going easy on nature, going easy on each other and like breaking down the hierarchical way in which we relate to one another and the earth. And like, to me, that's a very queer way of understanding interactions because it takes away those roles that define us and, and divide us and make us feel like we are entitled to destroying so many other species and so many living systems, um, which is a bit of a tangent. Um, so maybe we can bring it back to queer ecology and talk a little bit about the history of queer ecology. Absolutely. That sounds great. So, I mean, just like any discipline, queer ecology has some blurriness about like who really originated it. Um, so some people attribute kind of a lot of the underpinnings of queer ecology to Michael Foucault um, in the history of sexuality because he kind of observed how in the 19th century modern regimes began to see sex as a means of exerting control over human bodies like and human bodies as an object of scientific knowledge and so sex began to be studied and increasingly connected to ideas of nature um, and people who disrupted heterosexual norms started to be seen as quote-unquote against nature um, and so this kind of like understanding and, and undermining it um, informs a lot of the work in queer ecology today and I mean from these beginnings especially in the 1990s a growing and diverse kind of body of queer scholarship has grown um, one of the people who really advanced it was the person who I quoted from earlier, Katarina Sandilands. Um, but there's a ton of thought and it bridges a lot of disciplines. So it brings in things like environmental justice scholarship and it brings in um, ecofeminism and looking at um, racial uh, distribution of climate impacts and things like that. So it bridges a lot of things, um, but today it's kind of grown to become this more diverse body of literature. Absolutely. I think that's all super important stuff and for me like when I hear that I don't know I know I grew up really lucky in like a household that definitely saw being gay as something natural but it's kind of wild to think that it was just like I don't know what is that 50 years ago that it was seen as completely unnatural like not even in like the mainstream um, western societies and I think like there's a good reminder in there that like we live in a place in Toronto um, that is relatively accepting of queer identities like there is still so much violence especially against racialized queer bodies and in particular black trans women but in toronto you can be out and not go to prison you can be out and not die in so many other places in the world it's taboo there has been this long-standing narrative in a lot of like heteropatriarchal structures that exist today around the world that it's not natural to be queer and we're in this like very unique moment in history where it's relatively safer to be queer but like we need to keep fighting for that and we need to keep standing with other social movements and we need to say like we are natural we're here and we're beautiful um and it's scary sometimes but i think it's also like really exciting and it's a huge privilege that i take very seriously to be in a place where i can be out and demand my rights and start to demand rights for people who don't yet have them for their identities yeah absolutely and i think you i don't know from what it sounded like you had a lot of experience with that kind of i don't know realization of your positionality when you went to cop as well and all that just existing in those activist spaces yeah i mean like when i talk to activists from other places in the world um especially countries with really homophobic laws i just like get reminded constantly that 
I owe it, like, not just to myself. I owe it to people who cannot, for safety, stand up and have a voice to, like, use my voice. And, like, a lot of them reminded me of that, and I was really grateful for that. So absolutely. That's why we're happy we get to have these conversations and just think it out um, with each other, which is good. Do you want to talk about gay seagulls? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, for me, one of the best things that I have read was a book that I picked up to prep for this podcast. It's um, Bruce Bagamiel's 1999 book entitled Biological Exuberance. I have it right here with me. I haven't even read the whole thing, but it is so beautiful because it just like breaks down every homophobic thing that I've heard said to me. That's about like, you're not natural. There is something that like is good for children about having a female and a male parent that if you're non-binary you're just choosing and if you are bisexual you're just at a baby step towards being gay and all these kind of things are totally discredited in this book because nature is beautifully and diversely queer so according to researchers there is a massive number of animals actually like hundreds of species of animals that are queer in every possible and imaginable way. So I'm gonna quote from the book, if that's okay. <laughs> On every continent, animals of the same sex seek each other out and probably have been doing so for millions of years. They court each other using intricate and beautiful mating dances that are the results of eons of evolution. Males caress and kiss each other, showing tenderness and affection towards one another rather than just hostility and aggression. Females form long-lasting pair bonds, or maybe just meet briefly for sex, rolling in passionate embraces or mounting one another. Animals of the same sex build nests and homes together, and many homosexual pairs raise the young without members of the opposite sex. Like, there are also examples of bisexuality, of transness, of gender nonconformance in nature. It is incredible, this book, and what it has brought to me. Um, so according to Bagmill, queer behavior is documented, like research has documented that exists in over 450 species across every continent and every major animal group. Um, it takes place in many beautiful forms, infinitely varied and naturally queer. That is so cool. Oh my God. I, oh my goodness. I did not know it was that many is my, is my shocker on that one. 450 is crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I guess I have a couple examples one thing I wanted to do is there's a ton of examples in the book I want you to think of an animal say the animal and we're gonna find the passages if they exist about that animal okay yeah that sounds great okay what animal I've really been into giraffes lately is there anything on giraffes oh my goodness are you kidding <laughs> oh my gosh they're in the book giraffes <laughs> Giraffes are the tallest mammal, up to 19 feet tall. Yeah, so female giraffes apparently tend to congregate in groups of up to 15, and males generally associate in all-male bachelor groups, and then tend to become solitary as they get older. The mating system is polyamorous. And let's look at gay behaviors. So male giraffes often have court courtships or affectionate activities called necking between males. What else? Homosexual activity is common in giraffes in many cases and actually more frequent than heterosexual behavior. Yeah. In one study, 
mountings between males accounted for 94% of all observed sexual activity. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. Wow, that's awesome. That does make me very happy for unexplainable reasons. <laughs> that's so cool. I think the other cool thing is that a lot of giraffes engage in um, non-reproductive sexual activity, which means that like sex for pleasure and just finding ways that exist outside heterosexual norms of reproduction is actually common with giraffes. Um, and I kind of love that. Anything to fuck the patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. Awesome. A couple other ones that really resonated with me. Um, many types of dolphins and whales display non-heterosexual behaviors, including the Amazon River dolphin, the bottlenose dolphin, and orcas or killer whales. And killer whales actually live in matrilineal units where the head of the group is a female. Um, bonobos have extensive and varied sexual repertoires, and it's common for two females to engage in very pleasurable sex between them. Um, and this, like, homosexual activity actually accounts for 40 to 50% of all their sexual interactions. So it's almost as common as heterosexual sex. Um, there are also thousands of species worldwide in which, quote-unquote, virgin birth is normal. So rather than using sperm to fertilize eggs... A female simply makes an exact copy of her own DNA or her own genetic code. And then reproduction is an asexual behavior. That's so cool. Why can't we do that? Yeah. That would be sick. I want a little clone of myself. Right. <laughs> Another really cool thing that I found was that um, in other species, individuals can be both male and female simultaneously. So there are not really separate sexes. This is true in a number of fish species. Um like lantern fish and other deep sea fishes, male to female gender transitions and blurrings actually occur in the animal kingdom as well. For instance, some female African swallowtail butterflies resemble males in their wing colors. Um, another uh, example would be among coral fish. There are a lot of examples of transsexuality. For instance, dozens of species actually have reproductive organs that undergo a complete reversal. So if a fish has organs, that um, were once fully functional ovaries, their transformation and their transition could then make those organs become fully functional testes. And so this formerly female fish then has the ability to mate and reproduce as a male. Very cool. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Man, nature's so cool. Yeah. We're so cool. <laughs> And I mean, one of the like the most common examples is, you know, seahorses. Yeah, I've heard a little bit about the dads really pulling their weight on this one, but tell me more. Yeah, I mean, exactly. So seahorses and pipefishes are among the species where the male is the one who gives birth to the young. So, I mean, I could give more examples, but I kind of feel like this is a good place to stop because holy shit, nature is gay. <laughs> nature is so queer in the most amazing and beautiful and like fucking super powered way. And I just think that for anybody who has been told that their identity is not quote unquote natural, like you exist in a world ripe with species that are diverse and unique and beautiful. And the more we are different from each other and the more we do different things and become who we are, the more absolutely amazing we are going to be and the more happy we're going to be. like. 
one of the species I identify most with are spruce trees. Um, and I just think they're incredible. They're strong and they're solid and they withstand. And I identify them with them because a spruce tree doesn't give a fuck about my gender. <laughs> like, and I just like, I, I feel at home there. Um, and I think we can all look to nature for a little bit of hope in that, you know, nature's not going to discriminate against us and we're a part of it and we're reflected in it. And we're also never even going to be able to imagine all the ways queerness exists in nature. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah. So I'm glad you brought up the, the killer whales, the orcas, because I think that is one of my favorite animals. And man, I love that they have the matriarchy, that they're just living by their, their moms all the time. I, yeah. I think there's also a lot to be said with I don't know, because I there's also there's always this warning about like we don't want to anthropomorphize um, the natural world. Da, da, da. Of course, you know that's the science folk telling us, you know, we need to view the world a certain way. But I think there's so much value um, in being able to find these ways to relate to the natural world and really see um, ourselves as part of it. Um, and I think that being able to find queerness. I don't know. That's just such a cool way to be like, hey, I, I see that. I understand that. <laughs> um, and I see myself in that. And I see the world in myself and that sort of thing. So, yeah, just what we're talking about with the binaries and stuff. I think, yeah, being able to see the world is completely like in a very relational way and just always in relationship with with itself is super important to environmentalism as well. But, yeah, I just wanted to bring that that in a little bit. I mean, like the more we're able to see the world as dependent on us to stop killing it and we're dependent on it to breathe to drink water to eat to live then the more we're actually going to be inclined to protect it and to take the action necessary um to stop what's going on so yeah um totally in agreement is there anything else we should cover before we wrap it up i don't know nothing really i'm I'm thank you so much for sharing all that. I really enjoyed hearing all that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So one thing we've been trying to do or we're going to try to do at the end of episodes is to talk about an organization that we think other people would benefit from kind of learning more from. Um, so for me, the one that I brought today was the Institute of Queer Ecology. Uh, so this is a uh, institute that actually approaches issues of environmental degradation through the lens of design and art. Um, and they look at queer ecology in artistic ways and they conduct research in artistic ways um, to break down binarized ways in which we relate to the world around us. And I came across them like literally two hours ago. So I haven't looked into them a ton, but I'm going to be following them on Instagram just at the Institute of Queer Ecology. And I am going to be looking into more of their work. Um, so I encourage other people to learn more about that because I think art is just an incredible way that we can communicate about the urgency of environmental action and of the value of queer perspectives in that action. Awesome. I love that. I'm definitely going to look into them. And the book that we were reading is uh, by Bruce Bagamil. And we totally recommend that if you want some really fun literature you should look into it and also i don't know just have a little night with your friends and look up different animals that are gay because that's a ton of fun absolutely yeah. all right well we're here we're queer and we'll be here next month bye